Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program and podcast where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WIR as DJ Lilas, and I'm here today with Megan and John to discuss the 1986 sequel to Alien, Aliens, directed by James Cameron. There's movement all over the place. Five meters, man. Four. Aliens. This time, it's war. Guys, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Cameron. Hey, thanks so much. So for those who don't know Megan and John, they are a married sci-fi couple, living the the dream. Um, (laughs) And they're well-beloved by the sci-fi community, especially here in New York um, and across the world for starting an amazing book club simply called The Sci-Fi Book Club, um, which has grown from just a handful of people to thousands of members over the past nine years. Um, basically, they read books and talk about them monthly on Zoom and all year on Discord. And they've also participated in um, the Brooklyn Sci-Fi Film Festival. Um, you were judges, right, on the panel? Um, yeah, coordinated uh, Yeah, uh, with uh, a, a number of our uh, Sci-Fi Book Club uh, members to uh, go through and screen, uh, do an initial cut and um, you know, make sure that they, uh, the projects lived up to sci-fi expectations. Yeah, it was one of the best film festivals I've been to and I've been to many it was just the selections were so good so thank you for that I mean, yeah. it's really hard to screen out films that you love but you must have had a lot of good movies and you helped coordinate it too I really loved it so if you guys are interested in that if that sounds something up your alley go to the sci-fi and check it out they also are on meetup and uh, we'll talk more about that at the end but first I just want to ask Megan and John why did you choose aliens um two words Alan Ripley it is a, a a childhood favorite movie movie of mine i mean I, we did really consider to do alien we really really considered it um but there i think we'll go into it probably later why we actually chose aliens over alien but um john why did you why did you pick uh, yeah i mean when when i think of those movies that really made an impact on on me probably you know too young to be watching it uh, late at night, you know, dark living room, um, this moment when, uh, you know, where horror and science fiction and military, like procedural all come together. <laughs> um, and uh, I had just never seen like, well, uh, it was great to see, I should say, like all of the practical effects and all of this, like, mashed in with that kind of a story I, i've just never seen anything like it and yeah. uh it made a big impact it really does it all it's mm-hmm. it, it's really rare to have a movie this is i mean this is something i want to talk about is this, the sequel element of you know how it's yeah. so hard to come in and do a sequel when you're not the originator right you're right. not scott scott ridley um ridley scott <laughs> mm-hmm. um you're not ridley scott who, and and just taking all the hard work that they did with hr giger and making mm-hmm. it an action film, but he did so well. Like it was, you know, I, I in an interview, um, James Cameron said that everyone told him not to do it. <laughs> and they said, anything that's good, they're going to contribute to the last movie. And anything that's bad, they're going to contribute to you. But he did it anyway. And I think that's, it's, yeah, it's, it really does. It does a lot that the original alien doesn't do. And it can, it mm. does feel like something that really imprints on your childhood mind, maybe because there's a child in it. But um, if you haven't seen aliens, don't stop listening you can you can actually there's actually studies that show 
that a little bit of light spoilage can increase your enjoyment of the content. You probably already know most of the story by now because of you know the zeitgeist. Released in 1986 for 20th Century Fox, this much-awaited sequel to Ridley Scott's classic was directed by James Cameron and features Sigourney Weaver with an all-new cast. Ripley is discovered in cryo-sleep and wakes up 57 years after the horror aboard the Nostromo, only to find that those dang dastardly capitalists are at it again and have not only gone back to the planet LV-426, but have placed hundreds of workers there to terraform the planet. Despite her better judgment, she's drafted to act as a consultant for a motley crew of space marines to go and rescue what is left of the colony and try to escape alive. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. Yeah. Spoiler alert, it's, uh, there's aliens. Yeah. yeah, spoiler alert, there's not one, there's many. purely in the plural aspect of the name. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Part of the- we'll be happy to know that Jonesy did survive. Yes, so <laughs> important. He stays planet Possibly the smartest pet in the galaxy. I mean, we're going back into it. <laughs> she does go back to the cat and she goes back for the little girl. Um, mm-hmm. Which that whole sequence is just so nerve-wracking. I think, you know, they're both, they're both heart racing in different ways. You know, what mm-hmm. um, What I wanted to start with is there's a quote from James Cameron where he said, um, I knew I couldn't replicate Alien for pure shock. And there's basically no other movie that can do what Alien did, right, in terms of shocking mm-hmm. the audience. But I knew mm-hmm. I could do a white knuckle action film. And so he leaned into what he's good at with, with Terminator and he made and he added something of value instead of trying to replicate it by making it an action film. And he, he did a lot of different things and built onto the universe, I think, in a lot of smart ways. But I just want to like speak to that like the difference between an action and what i consider alien is a horror film like it's a haunted house in space right mm-hmm. that's what that totally. this is not really haunted house there's still the kind of that haunted house vibe you're going through the spooky gooey you know layer of the monster but yeah like what stands out to you guys about the the difference in tone and um i would say genre i mean you know it it really like it, it is um, marketed as a blockbuster, right? It's like one of the first real like big splash. This is going to be, you know, we're shooting lots of guns. This is going to be a big time action film. Um, and I think that's one of my favorite things about it is that really that's not the only thing this movie does. Um, and so that it it's so um, flawlessly like um, it's so carefully like weaves together those horror elements that are so special about the first movie um with this new run and gun dynamic you know um and so um you know you get to meet these kind of like vietnam era you know soldiers yeah heinlein super troopers am i right yeah. like yeah right yeah yeah it, it does well, you get one mech suit, don't you, right? <laughs> you get to see two, but one is used. I'm a big fan of mechs. And I do think Vasquez is one is the best of all the Rain characters. Um, it's according to uh, yeah, really talks uh, about that. I, I had a full-on crush on Vasquez oh. uh, as, <laughs> as a kid. Oh, <laughs> didn't we all? Que bonito. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> immediately doing like coming out of cryo sleep and doing pull-ups like just so cool and just like looking at her arms too as she's doing yeah, right. so great <laughs> so that actually ties really nicely into um why i really wanted to do aliens um a lot of it was around ripley herself um and how in the first movie in alien she um, was the heroine and she survived the movie and uh, spoiler alert, all that, all that stuff. But she is so much stronger in the second movie. And I love that about the character growth and the differences between um, Ridley Scott's version and James Cameron's version um, was just the character itself and what he made her into. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about the poster, right, it's like this kind of mm-hmm. subversion of the typical like um, genre poster because she's got a motherly like she's holding a little girl and a gun so like she's filling this very strong role it's really interesting you say that because there was an interview done right around when the film came out um with Sigourney Weaver where the interviewer was asking her the same thing he's like did you love doing this because you were such a strong female character and she goes actually what attracted me to the role of doing it again was the fact that at the beginning she's not strong like she's a relatable Mm. character at the beginning she's out of time, she's disillusioned and burned out, and I could feel her mental exhaustion and can I relate to her? <laughs> oh, yeah. And she's like, I, I could lo- really I love her in that moment. Like, love that about Sigourney And that Weaver. is actually it's good writing because if yeah, she just showed up and popped off and was ready to go back to battle, I think it what one of the things James Cameron talked about is like we need the audience to be able to go along with her and she's making a choice that no one would make ever. Yeah, it's just actually one of my one of my notes that I made about the movie itself, um, and one of my favorite scenes. It's such a small moment, and it just goes to show how good of an actor Sigourney Weaver is. Is is her first time with the Marines stepping onto um, the planet, the the planet that they're I forget the name of it, the LB four two six or whatever it's called. LV four two six. You got it. LV426. Um, the first time she gets off the machinery that the, the Marines are using and she steps onto the planet side, you, you see her in the background. She's not the focus point of the shot, but you see her and she's terrified. She's looking around and she's like, something's coming at me and I know it's going to happen. And I love that moment. And, and unlike the first one, she's she knows she has more information than everyone and she's trying to protect mm-hmm. them and unable to protect them from what's happening. So you feel yeah. I mean, like that that alone is enough to create tension throughout the whole movie. But there's something that James Cameron does where it's like the tension is just cranked to like nine the whole time that makes it yeah. I think that makes movies well, fly by. So go ahead, John. Totally. And I, they do such a great job setting this movie up. And as soon as um, it, for and setting up the characters, but from that first moment that they land and are exploring the um, like the community, um, th- there's like vaguely alien shaped objects in the in the hallways there's skittering kind of sounds there's movement and we as viewers already know what an alien what a xenomorph looks like right so so on top of it like he he, cameron keeps using sound and he keeps using these visual cues to to um, remind us and and let us in on that bit of terror that she's feeling in that mm-hmm. moment. Um, it's That's just so so, so artfully it's so done. Good, yeah. it's, scary. it's scary and it's action. It's a really good blending. And what he what he talked mm-hmm. about is that he wanted to make it a sequel that people who hadn't seen the original could still get. 
but that everyone who had watched mm-hmm. the original would have would notice and be reminded of everything. And I was looking at the clock. I'm sure you guys were. It's like not until 30, 40 minutes that you actually see any of them. And that moment right. where they peel off the wall, it's it's just mm-hmm. as good as the first like movie. Like little spiders When they peel off the wall, oh. you're like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> He actually said he spent more time focusing on motion. I think this is a really interesting part. And I want to talk about production design. He's like, you know, he's actually lucky because he inherited this like unparalleled production design element of like using HR Giger, which was the smartest thing Ridley's ever done. And um, mm-hmm. he just was like, cool, plop, yank. And, and what they did is he says, he had this really great quote about how like humans only need a few pixels to recognize human motion. And that, and like most production designers and costume designers will spend hundreds of hours just like sculpturally designing the outsuit, the suit. And he's like, what we did mm-hmm. is like reduced the suit down to make so that we could give people who are actors and acrobats more room to work on the leaping and the lizard like motion so that you don't mm. recognize and i thought that was so smart because like because there's so many more aliens more xenomorphs there's a lot of crawling jumping and leaping and i think he did a good job of making me not feel that they're all humans in suits and especially yeah, the absolutely. queen at the end she's a giant puppet you know so like that does a good job yeah. of breaking your mind around that so i thought that was a good investment of time right it's like uh, let me take this let me take what worked well with the costume and then focus on the motion of the aliens that makes them so scary for me the most memorable mm-hmm. scene the one that like haunts me as i'm trying to sleep is when they when he pokes his head up through the ceiling and they're all climbing through yeah. it's like that's like the most exactly. iconic oh. it's the most iconic thing ever because it's like i think it reaches into the human brain of like cockroaches or something you know it's like the worst possible thing you could see <laughs> is bugs I'm so, <laughs> glad, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's one of my favorite scenes in i would say modern sci-fi it's it's just it's that moment that yeah, when you turn on the light and all the uh, roaches scatter or whatever, you know, j- just to be like, they're right on top of us. How is this possible? You know, and, and we hadn't really seen that in a movie before. And we hadn't seen this many aliens coming at the same time. And then the sequence that follows is so great. You were talking about the first kind of unfurling of the xenomorph, right? When it comes out of the law. Um, that, that fight sequence is really just a series of flashes of light and alien anatomy. And it's just so gorgeous. Yeah. Intense sound. Um, Yeah. And so it's one of the things that stands out for me as, as one of the great kind of moments where you can both show and not show uh, the big bad guy in order to make something really feel successful. You know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be the entire alien all the time in order to be terrifying. You pretty much never see them. So he, he basically James Cameron and the writers and his wife, Gail, who produced it. So I think that I didn't Mm -hmm. know this, but I think that had a lot to do with the films continuing. It's kind Mm -hmm. of strong feminist energy is that his wife, it was still making so many decisions alongside him and they like this the psychology of it is the less you see of the monster the scarier it is right so we almost never see the xenomorph fully lit in any way like they're leaping but there's never you never see really anything i don't even really think you you almost see the you see the queen in full but only when she's getting blasted out so it's like everything is just bits and pieces and that's because there was no cgi um but it also like it plays it pays off so much more just to see the flicking of the tail so i agree with you i Mm -hmm. think the art there's artfulness to his action um action's really hard to do and it's so expensive right this is like so expensive this yeah 
Yeah, the uh, regarding cost in general, I had seen when I was looking around online that they made the first Alien film for 35K yeah. and that the second one was that this movie was $1 million was the budget. Yeah. So to more than double the budget um, and you get, I would say, double the action. So Yeah, yeah I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's actually a section that I generally do. I say box office flop or not. So for the million that they spent, was this a flop or not? I, decidedly not. It was a huge smash mm. hit. It still is. Mm-hmm. James Cameron has the golden touch. But I do love, like, Alien is also one of those hallmarks of, like, Ridley Scott just spent, like, years painting every storyboard. Like, he just saved, he only saved money. Like, they, he just, <laughs> it's crazy how cheap that movie got made for. It's yeah. unbelievable how cheap $35, that movie was. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. I mean, that's not adjusted for inflation, is it? Like, yeah. it's just no, <laughs> no freaking no. way. I mean, the truth is they do use the alien in really smart ways in the first movie. And it's the same kind mm-hmm. of way it's used again, where it's like, you never really see its full body. You just see like a little bit of the mouth or the arms. It like comes out at you like, comes out you know, at you like this. hands out. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this is, this one, This you, of course, I'm sure you guys were noticing this. You're like, wow money <laughs> yeah. money mm-hmm. mechs there's giant there's giant like batmobiles the there's mul- there's yeah. multiple yeah, yeah. like huge well, explosions yeah go ahead i do think one of the reasons why it stands up so well through the test of time aliens in general and and to be fair ridley scott's version alien um is is the practical effects there is mm-hmm. very limited cg effects you you see it when they're coming down planet side oh, and it's so and bad, it's bad. Yeah, it looks it's bad so now bad. um whereas the the creatures and the the puppetry and the, the practical effects they stand up so well and it's still you know it's still scary yeah. is because of those practical effects um it's and having so to much... work around having a massive budget you know it's just they're still so much scarier than any cgi monster that I can think of. For sure, like, yeah. I just can't think of a movie that does, that scares you the same way. And I, that's kind of one of the like big takeaways of this podcast is every single time, nah, practical effects are better. Every single time. You know, a, yeah. virtu- a, a, you know, people who work in CGI will say the best is to have a pairing. So to have practical effects mm-hmm. and then have some CGI enhancing and like adding little top. lasers and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like if there's something practical they can add on to. Um, yeah, I thought Annihilation did a good job with the with their CGI. Yeah, yeah the Gator, the Gator yeah, was pretty gator. good. And then yeah. a, a fair amount of that was also practical. Like any all of the um, a number of the like people that became trees. Yeah, yeah, that, that was augmented. Those are yeah. real. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and, and that's so, that is yeah. one of the most memorable scenes too. And I think yeah. my, my family's favorite scene is the um, like the flower deer, the little like flower yes. reindeer. Oh, beautiful. They're beautiful. Terrifying. It's great. Beautiful and terrifying. Such a good movie. Um, Which I think does sum this movie up as well. Beautiful and terrifying, I think, is just about on track for for aliens. And gooey. When we think about this idea of like existential dread that that, uh, Annihilation poses, I think that it it is a lot more tangible in Aliens, but um, you you definitely still get that same vibe. Uh Yeah. Yeah. The alien is very tangible and very real, Mm -hmm. uh, but you just don't see it. Yeah, but you do. See you do see all the detritus. You see the you see the eggs, the face huggers. Um, yeah. There's yeah. There's a lot of good stuff about this. I want to ask you guys about more sci-fi in general, but first, I want to say yeah. you're listening to "They Came from Outer Space" on WIR or on any podcast platform you're listening. I'm speaking to John and Megan about aliens. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. Are you me? Yeah. Yeah. Are you me? Yeah. 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 
So you guys are like hardcore sci-fi fans. Can I just go all the way back to the beginning and say, why sci-fi? Ooh. Oh, uh, um, you know, it, it does have a lot to do with what I was exposed to as a kid. I mean, it's just what um, my parents loved and what I grew up on. And so it was ubiquitous. Like I didn't, I didn't think you could live any other way. But <laughs> science fiction. Were you a Star Trek um, household or Star Wars? Oh, household? of course. Yeah. Okay, I just want to yeah. make sure. Star Trek, Star both. We did both. <laughs> both. But leaning more towards Trekkies, but yes. Um, but the but my you know yes early exposure was part of it, but um, you can learn so much about society by taking what you what you extrapolating what you know about it and putting it into someplace else. Um, and you can learn, you can manipulate how people interact with each other. You learn about how societies interact with each other, um, technology interacting with society, with humans. I mean, you can learn so much about yourself through science fiction. Well, yeah. And I think that, the, I think that says it very well is like, w what is possible? Like that science fiction is take something that is theoretically possible and try to build an idea and build a, a movie or a book around it, right? The idea of something that is impossible, like, uh, um, you know, is where we get things like fantasy. Um, so, you know, you've yeah. got, you're, you're, you, I have wings and I'm flying around and, yeah. you know, there's dragons and all this. Um, the, uh, you know, that, that has its own value um and one of the things that's really exciting for me about science fiction is that yeah it it takes this idea of things that exist in our world and says okay now yeah what if we take this idea and run with it um and say what what could happen if we take this and put it to the extreme put it to the extreme yeah, yeah thank you yeah yeah i think that there one of the ways that um, one of the past people had on this show said sci-fi is always about humans and it's always about the present, but we're wrapping it in something else. And it's always, it's always something, it's always like a love story or horror with sci-fi as kind of the wrapping, but you know, sure. the, the original stuff, you know, the war, uh, war of the worlds and Jules Verne stuff was a little bit more on the, what you said, John, what's possible. Can we explore the oceans and can we fly a, a balloon around the world and stuff? And I think nowadays there's, what what alien and aliens does is my favorite thing is speaks to the ravages of capitalism pretty blatantly <laughs> it's very, one of my favorite things yeah. to use sci-fi for it's like the exact i love that like he didn't change anything about that that plot line because it's just so true but and so when you do extrapolate these ideas you know you do get these cautionary tales right you do get these moments where you're saying oh wow if we're not careful this could happen um, yes. You know, and when you talk about H.G. Wells or you talk about Jules Verne, um, they were trying to be optimistic um, yeah. and they were trying to envision a future that was a society working together. Um, and, um, you know, and, and were visionaries for that. Um, the 
it's really refreshing to see a return to this idea in popular science fiction now, like um, an author like Becky Chambers, yeah. who is working to, you know, say, okay, it doesn't have to be doom and gloom to be successful science fiction. You know, we can say what if and have it be uh, optimistic story. Yeah, something good. That's that's the yeah. that's what the power of it is for. And Star Trek for so long was the only thing that was doing that. It was like carrying yeah, the absolutely. weight of giving us positive hope because humans have this this nasty habit of doing whatever we think the future is going to look like. So like whatever future we paint on the wall is generally what the scientists start making, right? Our our popular culture tends to influence like we have cell phones because of Star Trek, you know, like there's a lot of things that's that we have weird. because of what's presented in media. Um and I'm really, really grateful to Becky Chambers for at least giving me hope. And I, that's what I'm always seeking is like, where's the sci-fi? That's something good to look forward to. The Aliens universe, it feels like, it feels kind of like the expanse. It's like, this is what right. happens if nothing changes. And nobody wants right. that. Like the takeaway is like, right. bad, bad, very bad. <laughs> but yeah, what you were saying yeah. about um, fantasy. The alien invasion because capitalism. Yeah, because <laughs> capitalism, because we want, because, because he ordered the people to go check out the eggs. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, uh, this anti-establishment message that you're that you're referencing from this film is something that, you know, ob is is very obvious in the beginning of the movie. Right. Ripley is has to get a dressing down in a in a, you know, in a boardroom and she's going through it. Even when Burke calls her kiddo, <sighs> it like even today, yeah. it irks me like, yeah. No matter how many times I watch the movie, I'm like, she's what, 67 years older than you yeah. at least? Yeah. And you're yeah. still calling her kiddo? So, it's so diminutive and like, ugh, I hate it. But I don't it's, it's also her. interesting that, yeah, yeah right. Um, but, or if they do, they, it's not good business, right? Yeah. So, uh, but you know, the other part that I thought was interesting there is that, um, like, even Burke in his way is, anti-establishment he's out for his own good really um once he gets going because initially he's doing all this work for the company making sure to try to save the colony if he can don't nuke it but then gets this idea of uh you know bringing these the uh face huggers you know, face huggers back um well, and it, selling them yeah. on the market or you know so even he this you know company man is uh kind of pushing this anti-establishment kind of uh um agenda which is well, is something like, i had never seen before it's an interesting layer to the to the narrative it is the individualism over over the group over the mentality the that americans have in general right and um and so we're being cut down for that <laughs> you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, he's a company man, but he's like, you know what? I know I can make money off of research on these creatures. There's definitely some some way we can capitalize on this, and I'm going to impregnate Newt and Ripley with yeah. these face hungers and get them through quarantine. You know, it's like uh, that's such a good is, scene uh, when when Ripley figure when Ripley calls out his plan. Um, yeah. So for those who haven't seen the movie, Burke is like the company man who's assigned to go along with the mission to make sure nothing goes wrong. Um, yeah, and that I think that that element is really strong um re like rehashing it and making it clear that um the line that she says is kind of the thesis you know ripley says i don't know who's worse like us or them when when she when, when mm -hmm. she sees humans undercutting it's like well these aliens are like collectively working together these xenomorphs are like got their own thing they have their own whatever kind of society and that that is the question right is who is mm -hmm. worse are we are, are they inherently bad right just because they're black and 
shiny and gooey and they oh. kill are they and inherently worse than us survival. Yeah. yeah right their purpose is survival and the way they survive is by implanting their embryos in living hosts mm-hmm. so that they can replicate mm-hmm. that's their whole purpose yeah um and that's the driving force of this i think the this whole movie is um i i hate I hate that motherhood is the driving force, but it really is, ends up being Ripley's motivation and it ends up, and it is the alien's motivation as well. I mean, you meet the mother at the end of the the Mm -hmm. movie plant, like planting these eggs and, and Ripley literally destroys her, her womb for revenge. Yeah. Right. That's what happens. And the driving force is motherhood. And it's, I, it's I, a mom I, fight. That's the, what the movie it's a mom, too. mom fight, mom really, battle, really big mom boss fight. Yeah. And I love it, but I also hate that, that I know that that's the reason this movie, the, the motivation behind the movie. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I'm so glad you said that. I felt the exact same way because this movie is great. Right. Like, and, and also moms do deserve like their show, like this, they are so underrepresented in action right especially at that time so like i'm glad that but you know i felt i got the feeling that this film only worked because they gave her a maternal role and i was like come Mm -hmm. on the first movie was like written with non-binary character names nobody Mm -hmm. knew that ripley was going to live at the end that was the huge thing was that like anyone can make it and that she became the hero and then this time around the fact that it only works because she has to take on a maternal role i felt kind of like undercut her power um, mm-hmm. a little bit and I felt like okay maybe it's just a product of the time but the truth is I I I think from a story perspective it makes more sense for her to have yeah. attached to the child I mean, like from a story perspective mm-hmm. if I'm purely taking away all my it's feminist agenda yeah. like I'm like okay well if there's a girl it's the only reason that Ripley would care enough right that she wouldn't mm-hmm. just like run away and be like you know screw these marines um and then too like the the addition of this new character that James Cameron kind of introduced a class that all the aliens we'd seen before were what he called warriors, like warrior ants. And then there's a mother, like a queen. And that idea really builds on it. And so when she battles it out with a queen, it just, it's so much more powerful for her to also be defending something. I mean, so I can, mm-hmm. I can forgive it, but I was also just like, oh man, she's always got to be running around with the little girl on. And then when, when Newt goes down the chute, I just was like, I can't watch this movie. Like I can't watch this. Movie. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And fun, fun fact about that. The actress that played yeah. Newt, I don't know if you guys know this from reading the, the trivia, Carrie Henn kept deliberately like blowing her scene so she could slide down the vent because she thought it was fun. And she said it was three stories tall. And James Cameron finally said that if she completed this, the shot, she could just play on it as much as she wanted. <laughs> <laughs> no, amazing. I hadn't heard that. That's I was great. like, so she like, she loved it. Like she was having a blast. She didn't think the alien was scary at all. She was just like doing a great, like wow. they were all really worried about her and like cussing around her. And like, she was right. like the least problematic part of the set um, wow. was the little girl. Yeah, <laughs> That's she- just great. <laughs> Good. she good. um i'll say she artfully delivers a thumbs up you know that they're around some of the dialogue it's it's okay it's a little you know she's clearly you know getting there uh but um she can give a, a thumbs up like she, nobody's she business. delivers my favorite one of my favorite lines in the movie which is they mostly come out at night mostly <laughs> mostly yeah we should get back inside um, <laughs> i mean i do think yeah. i think there's a lot about um, that that like i am grateful for any inter like I have a section. So every time I I do this podcast, I have like a template that I fill out with a bunch of notes and and pictures. No one else Mm -hmm. sees this. I guess I I would love to share them, but like I like write a little essay and there's always a section of like, you know, what was the budget? Was this a flop? 
Bechdel test pass or fail, and most yeah, of the films we've done are failed. Not a surprise. Yeah. So this is this this one's yeah. a pass. So I'm pleased. Like I'm like okay, yeah. like that's my bar. I'm like if you can pass the Bechdel test, I'll forgive anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad, but wow. that's where that's we are. Good. I'm glad you did the math on that. Good. So, that's yeah. good. That's I important. do as much as like it hurts that the motivation is motherhood and saving Newt. I do think it's still a good as you said it makes perfect it drives the movie forward it makes sense with the storyline um and i and i like that she can still be perceived as like a very strong character and and be a mother simultaneously yeah um i don't think that takes away from the movie for me in the long run and that's something that yeah. James Cameron does over and over with Terminator and yeah. with his other movies. Yeah. So I, I mean, mad respect. And I'm sure it has something more to do with like the women on his team. Right. Like and, and whatever. But like, you know, he, I think this movie has a lot of broad appeal for that reason. Like when she gets in the loader, I just start like jumping around. I'm like, oh, she's going to play. And then the little mechanized feet move. Because like I, I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of, of mechs and all of that stuff. Like Pacific Rim is my guilty pleasure. That's like, I love yeah. that stuff. Um, Absolutely. But they also had some really fun. I think the other thing about it is somebody asked Sigourney Weaver in an interview, would, if you had a nine-year-old, would you bring her to see the film? She's like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but there's a lot about it that has this kind of broad appeal fun to it. Like mm-hmm. the guns, yeah. James Cameron called them smart guns. They were like 45 pounds. He, he said something about the, the actress who played Vasquez was 95 pounds running around carrying a 45 pound gun. That, like, was, she's yeah. so short too. She's short and she's movie. ripped. <laughs> he's like, yeah, ripped. thankfully he's she's like, ripped. shorter than everybody in the movie. And, that, and you don't really notice it because of her character, but I think the, those elements, the loader and the guns, like the guns being cool, I think add this element of production design that at least makes it feel a little fun. Like there's like some cool tech. It feels lived in because everything yeah. feels so lived in and used and, and, you know, the guns all have names and their armor all is like writ, writing on it. And it's just, it, mm-hmm. it makes, and you feel the cohesion of the group. Uh, really well yeah I think well and it does all the set does feel lived in and I part of that I guess is because they used the Nostromo set again um for aliens I guess and so they're not dumb and (laughs) so and so but it's one of these things when it's like of course why not you know and it's so nice because there's like dents in the locker doors there's like there's all these you know kind of lived in moments that make you feel like oh this group of soldiers lives in this ship um so those those that attention to detail and that like cool factor um and that personalization factor really does just kind of um like subliminally kind of make those characters feel more valid somehow or like more well-rounded just by placing them in a setting and a costume that feels lived in and that's something that's something that james cameron is very upfront about stealing from ridley scott ridley scott is the king of what we call what he calls the used future that's what james cameron calls it and mm-hmm. like that and blade runner those movies completely redefine the genre by making mm-hmm. it feel attainable you know it's not 2001 a space odyssey it's not chrome and clean everything's dirty and what james cameron said really attracted him to the story is that the what it's exactly what you just said john that the characters were so recognizable that they were blue collar characters in a world that felt real and that made the movie accessible and i thought that was like oh of course like ridley scott was just the first person to crack the code 
oh, if we're going right. to write a sci-fi, we have to write it about make it. How do we make it feel like it's actually happening? And it turns out the answer is like dirt, uh, like <laughs> trash, um, <laughs> dirty clothes, ripped clothes. Need to be scientists every time. Yeah. yeah, like it doesn't need to be clean. Um, and um, mm-hmm. our mutual friend Julia, who came on the podcast, and I talk about that a lot. About you know, like there everything's like in the like the current zeitgeist everything that's the future needs to feel like it's like inside of an apple storm Roomba situation like everything's like chrome right. everything's clean so yeah his used future he built on it and then he keeps it going because like, there's a lot of trash in this movie <laughs> like there's just like dirt mm-hmm. all over the floors there's like and, and and like for some reason that is what tricks our brains into being like this is happening for real <laughs> like this this is really right. true because we but we all live in new york so like trash, yeah. is, trash is how i know right. that it's real <laughs> Right, that's right. You might find slime. You never know. <laughs> slime is how um, I know it's it might eat your shoe. Yeah, I love the acid. But <laughs> so, so you guys are you, you know sci-fi book club. You are traditionally connoisseurs, critics of the written word. What did you mm. think about the screenplay as you were watching this? Well, I, I guess the first thing that I noticed as I was really thinking about, I don't think I'd ever thought about the script of this film before. You know, it just, it's so natural that it, and it's just so organic that yeah. it, it doesn't really, hadn't really come to my mind before. But as I was watching this, Bill Paxton's role, uh, Bill Paxton as, um, as no, 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 um, no uh, Hudson, uh, Hudson, Hudson um, he ends up being the exposition for like most of the second half of the film right from when he comes in and is explaining all these different weapons he is the driving force of kind of explanation for what all the soldiers are thinking through the film um and it uh that was something that i hadn't caught before i really i really hated his character too the first time i watched this movie i was like that's how good of an actor bill paxton is like he goes from like big love to this like he's he's got so much range but like I don't know how old I was when I watched it, maybe 17. And I just remember like, I could like barely get through the scenes with him in it because he was so great. But you're right because it like that effectively hides all of his, he, he kind of is the audience, right? Like how do I get out of this outfit right. or we're He's all going to die. Terrified. Yeah. I'm over, man. You yeah. Know, he, it's, he's saying what everyone else is thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's also saying these things like, so what are we going to do? Like, go down there and shoot them? You know, these these moments when it's like, it's it really does kind of almost like recap the action that's about to happen. You know, like it, it kind of gives you, yeah, I think it speaks to 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 the, the pace of the film well. It kind of like gives the audience a bit of extrapolation on, okay, here's where the movie's going. Um, I hadn't noticed that before. Yeah, I do feel like it's really difficult to write a movie and give characters because this is an ensemble cast. I mean, the, all of the, a lot of these characters have a lot of screen time. Um, and I feel like they do a really good job. Um, I mean, with the exception of the group, there's, there's like, I feel like I counted. I don't remember where I put it. How many soldiers die in the first encounter with the lair? Yeah, a, um, a lot of them. Yeah, a lot. Majority of yeah, them die. It's pretty bad. Um, but even leading up to that, uh, besides those characters, you still get um, a lot of screen time and a lot of dialogue between characters. And I feel like the screenplay was really good at still moving the story along, but also giving the characters time to grow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think and that's something that, again, the first movie is an ensemble cast where everyone dies. Yeah. 
and you don't know in that in that one in the haunted house element you don't know who it's gonna be in this one we all kind of right. know ripley's making it to the end and everyone else is disposable like there's an and there's an innate aspect huh you you're not quite sure if hicks is gonna live so that's true uh, it is interesting that they do keep him alive and i think they i think cameron i don't know this for sure but i think cameron choo- chooses to do that for that keep you on a, your toes reason you know the first movie everybody dies except for ripley and jonesy uh the cat jonesy the cat yes um and in this movie you're not quite you you're almost sure that ripley's gonna survive but is anybody else going to um it, one thing that i love is they they went a little bit of a different direction with the ai lance lance henriksen who plays mm-hmm. gosh what is the ai's character name um, bishop. Bishop. bishop um he said that if he like made a he made a pact to himself that he would quit acting if this part didn't work out for him because he'd been like a journeyman but when he, this movie came out he was in his 40s and it was like his wow. most successful film but he caught food poisoning from the milk and yogurt combination that he had to spew up from his chest when he gets pierced oh, no. <laughs> oh no i'm sorry wow. i'm sorry i don't feel bad at all i just find that hilarious because i was like oh man they, were, great. <laughs> great. they made him swallow that stuff so he would spew it up like Ugh. million dollar budget and you still can't get the side stuff like it had to it had to yeah they still right they still they couldn't put a little facing. tube in the side yeah they needed front well, facing spew facing, and it was coming out of his mouth so yeah. i can see why that was and he's like <laughs> aspirating case. too yeah. like he's definitely like it's not going well uh <laughs> when it goes down yeah they oh, say so having sad. his lactose com- combination sitting around under hot studio lights created bacterial breeding grounds oh, it started to smell no. so bad after three days of filming that most of the crew members got hesitant to go near henrik's <laughs> Oh my god! Because <laughs> you don't think about that. You're so in the film that, like, when you see the white stuff, you're like, "Yeah, that's the AI juice." Like, it has no right, yeah. like. But I love, I love the stuff. Like behind the scenes, how did they do it? Is my favorite thing to look at. Um, like, how did oh, for sure happen? It turns out for the Queen. Fun fact: um, uh, like a year before shooting, James Cameron and a bunch of his t- crew just like went out in the parking lot on the studio set with like trash bags and poles and like had everybody move it around to be like this is the queen <laughs> like that's like where it started yeah. <laughs> like a big trash yeah there's something like i saw a photograph of them doing that it yeah. looked crazy it's yeah, hilarious it crazy yeah there's uh there's something like 12 people running that queen yes. um and it just it's it's in it's incredible um and you know it I think if this movie's made a few years later, they don't put the big crazy bone things up and then they use computer graphics to fill that in. Yeah. And I think you would have lost a little bit of the um, the magic there. Um, yeah. I, I, Cameron, to your point, like those behind the, the scenes moments of particularly like special effects mm-hmm. um, and, and that kind of stuff, I think of like, that the thing and uh well, well any of the john carpenter stuff well let's take uh, alien three uh yeah. with there there was a there's another another you know um thing about alien three where they're using real uh animal blood yeah. during um there's a scene where um the chest burster comes out of a dog yeah. and so they're trying to throw blood at the camera and they can't get it to go right and so now the whole set reeks of like old blood yeah. and it's and people can't stand it nobody wants to be on set people are slipping yeah. around in it and stuff yeah, yeah. disgusting it's really yeah. weird that they made that choice not gonna lie yeah <laughs> it's a really weird choice I think the scene eventually was actually cut out 
of the movie in the yeah. long run. They darkened. They had to darken that yeah. because it got an NC seventeen rating because it was real blood. Yeah. So they had to cut one of the scenes and then turn down the lighting on the other one. Ouch. Just so you know, I did have a box set of Aliens growing up with commentary <laughs> and behind the scenes stuff that we watched a lot. What do you remember? <laughs> Uh, what was that? What do you remember from that behind the scenes commentary? Oh, that, that in particular, that I learned um, from that. <laughs> All the actors um, being like, it stank. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It was awful. Yeah. I remember that. A lot of the stuff we've already talked about. But yeah. um, Bill Paxton oh, and improvised. The spaceship oh, in, um, in Aliens looks like the gun that they're toting. So it's. Set and, designed specifically to look like the gun. And also yeah. looks like a xenomorph. So yeah. it's like yes. if you took one of their guns and a xenomorph together, then you pretty much like, have Were they just the, using all the, the same molds and didn't want to do something different? Or we yeah, just you wonder. Oh, I was just going to circle back around to the power loader because it's one of my favorite things. Yes. Uh, we kind of went off, uh, off topic there. Um, just that it's like, it's really smart because we have Ridley in the first movie, uh, uh, Ripley in the first movie, who's... Um, like she is in charge of flying the ship, right? Um, so she's a, a navigator, you mm-hmm. know, knows how to fly a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then to have her, it's a, to have them go, okay, well, what can you do? And she goes and gets her certification in, you know, other loaders, machinery. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it sets up the movie, sure, it sets up the power loader, but also this moment when she takes over the the truck and goes and saves the you know the marines um you know that she'd be able to drive that car like you know with adeptly because it's a big large weird vehicle um and also that you know it's a tank she's working the technology in in a in a proficient way and i think that's something that we don't see a lot of is like why can this person do this why are they good at it yes Um, and so she is set up they're giving her credit for being the heroine, right? Not mm-hmm. just making her lucky to look out to happen to be the heroine. She has like the yeah, right skills. Could be a strong woman surviving in a male-dominated world, right? Which yeah. is what she's in. So, yeah. um, and after a certain point, he's mansplaining the gun to her, and she's like, "I got, I got it. it." You know, it's like that's that's great. She so you don't have that in Alien, right? I think it's a very, very much a, um, as you said earlier, it's uh, Alien is a very non-binary. The characters were written to be gender neutral. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have Aliens, which is very much an 80s movie. So you have male, female roles in society. You have Ripley, who is written specifically to be a female character in a male-dominated society. You have all these other pressures and and whereas Alien, I think, feels timeless, Aliens does not. You, it is an 80s movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a big criticism I have between the two. Mm. Um, I don't think it detracts for me from the story and from, from love of the movie, but it definitely feels um, dated in that way. Mm. Speaking of dated, you're listening to They Came From Outer Space mm. here on WRIR. It's a sci-fi movie review show. I'm here with John and Megan. We're talking about... The 80s film, Aliens, by James Cameron. Get away from her, you bitch! I mean, 
for an 80s film, I could feel that because you could feel that the film was so proud of itself for having a lesbian in space that's in the Marines. Hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? <laughs> oh, Vasquez. Right? That, like, oh. It took me a while to realize, but like, women weren't allowed to be in the military in the 80s like they weren't allowed to fight i mean they were allowed to be in the military but like they weren't allowed to carry a gun so like you could feel that they were just like look at this you know and to me that's not doesn't shock me because i'm like yeah (laughs) duh but you know i think that was important it's still important you know that does play a role if it's a blockbuster that does play a role in the general consciousness Mm -hmm. of accepting so i'm glad that he does those things of like accepting women as women who can work in freight loading (laughs) like that stuff needs to be portrayed and unfortunately needs to be portrayed like hundreds of years in the future for us to like fully accept it as okay but those things do have a role and like i am grateful for these movies for kind of like pushing the needle a little bit forward in terms of i guess just like how we portray women well and yeah absolutely and and that's I think what goes back to what we were talking about before, right, is, you know, trying to um, set goals for what's what the future can be through science fiction, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So absolutely. You know, I I think that Cameron's doing good work. So with just a few minutes left, um, I I like to talk about what can we learn from this? So, you know, as people who read a lot of sci fi and you've seen what works and what doesn't and also what works for you and what doesn't. What can filmmakers learn from this movie? That's a that's a heady question. Um, I you know for me, I, I think um, <laughs> it's like you can't learn anything from a hundred million dollar but or yeah it was hundred million no one million just uh, one, million. No, one, one million just one million. million just a million just a casual million just a million. I, I think for me, you know, the thing that stuck out, it kind of like struck me like lightning was like. The, and actually during that sequence where she's taping up the gun, she's taping one gun to another gun and putting a flashlight on it and she's getting all of her gear together. Um, and then in the following sequence, she's like using flares to mark her, you know, her movement so that she knows how to get back out. Um, I think one of the things that filmmakers could learn from this is thoughtful action. Um, like these moments yeah. where you're not just being like Rambo, look at this gun, yes. um, but instead, you know, showing and uh, showing kind of how, why someone's proficient at uh, driving a forklift, you know, <laughs> how are they escaping, you know, being, being practical and, and um, giving people that are paying attention enough credit to show why something happens yeah they always say show don't tell but this is a great i love that idea of thoughtful action because she's dropping the flares and kind of immediately you're like oh that's so she can get back out like it gives you it gives i like when a movie gives you credit for being like intelligent enough to figure it out and instead of having her be like muttering like oh that's how i'll be able to get back out like they don't need to do that right so i love that you bring that act that that moment up because there is a lot of there's a lot of things that happen that don't need to be described or explained. Um, for some reason, something that comes up to me is like when the fa- when they're in the lab and the facehugger comes at her, she pulls the bed so she can catch it right there. I don't know. That's not really like a thoughtful action. That's just cool action. But um, like using your action to push the story ahead instead of just being cool, I think is really powerful because he makes all of the scenes scary. Something that's like to build on that to 
that I feel like I can learn from watching this is something we've already talked about, which is build up and payoff and like the build up, the setting of the groundwork of her. Like it's really hard to do exposition, especially in a sci-fi film. And luckily he benefited a lot from the whole first movie being the exposition, but like explaining things in a way that doesn't feel like you're hitting people over the head. And like, he really gently started with him being like, I know you're working on the docks. You're down on your luck. And so like that plants in your mind that she's been working on the docks. And then when she doesn't pick up with a loader, you're like, well, that tracks. Like he gently builds it up. And when I was watching this movie again, I was like, oh, they're going to, oh, they're going to use it. Like you don't think about it mm-hmm. for the first time. So I think like finding ways to have build up and pay off um, in a way that feels natural. It's really hard to do. And I, I mean, without a single flashback. Without a single flashback. Or one of those things that they do where it's, I think he does it in Alien where there's like ship's log right yeah none of those yep, like ship's log 1980 like that's that's such a cop-out and i'm sure you guys run into this a lot in in the books you read too right like how how can they how can they do it without just overloading us with exposition um well what's good about uh in a novel though is you you can have inner dialogue and it not be odd whereas mm-hmm. in a movie you can't you can have inner dialogue, but unless you, it's really easy to do it wrong. Um, but in a in a novel, you can do it and you can do it easily. Yeah, well, it's, and, it's a lot easier. You're right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that we talk about with the group often is, you know, some authors can give you a lot of information with um, a smaller amount of of words to do it. You know what I mean? It takes less words to say what they want to say. Um, and those authors, I, I find myself, e- uh, easier, uh, like, uh, I have an easier time reading those authors yeah. because they're not spending so much time explaining every little piece in, 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 uh, of a society or every little rivet in a spaceship. Yeah. Um, but instead, you know, they're able to, um, just kind of set the stage, let you kind of imagine the world and and take you through it. Yeah, you know, like I don't need a description as to why Bishop is a different, um, what does he call himself? A artificial, uh, artificial human. human. Yeah. I don't need to know a different he's model. different other artificial human from his predecessor. Um, but all I need to know is that he is an Android. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and, and Cameron does that really well in this. So I just... love, I love when you say that cause it makes me feel like it's me. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> my friends always joke. Like if you married James Cameron, you would be called Cameron Cameron. And I was like, I would, <laughs> I would marry him because then I would get my films produced immediately. <laughs> with a huge budget. <laughs> He's a freak, but like any woman who comes near him, they get, she gets her movie, movie made. So um, yeah, the, the, thing about this that, that reminded me of of like i went to this world building seminar when i was at the dc comic-con um and it was so helpful because they they say that again when you're writing the world you want to share all the cool stuff you came up with you want to share the whole history of the unicorn lineage or whatever mm-hmm. it is right you want to tell everybody every part of the world that you built but the way the advice that they gave is only do world building around what's happening in the story like, don't deviate from this actual action of the story to go off and tell me about, like, the, the dwarves. And, like, Tolkien's actually somebody who right. does a really bad job of this. Like, he's always writing, like, a 15-page song about something that's not really related to the plot. <laughs> and I'm always like, skip. <laughs> but, like... In yeah, defense of Tolkien, though, he, he was kind of one of the first to yes. really describe a world outside of what we knew. Yes. Um, and so he spent a lot of time... Ex- 
you know, yeah. explaining because he felt like he needed to. Exposition, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what the um, Silmarillion is. It's like his backstory book that he like used. Yeah. And and that's and the truth is I still read it. It's not like I didn't like it. I just think, mm-hmm. I think what it's hard to do is what I'm saying. is like when you have spent the time coming up with this, you want to share it, but it actually detracts yeah. from the story. So it hurts. So it's a really counterintuitive yeah. thing to, to choose to do to be yeah. like, I would want to write about the androids. And I'd want to have mm-hmm. some dialogue about it, but like James Cameron, it's just purely like guns loaded, let's go. <laughs> like, and that's I think right. that's really smart because it actually did a good job of passing the cell phone test. I'm, I'm sure you guys have this experience of like, how yeah. much am I checking my phone during a movie? And it's heartbreaking how many times like, it's just going up, up, up. So yeah, I think I think he did a good well, job. Sometimes it's due to anxiety. So I feel like it's okay <laughs> if somebody is anxious in this movie to look at your phone and don't feel like you can't. Because sometimes you need to look away. It's yeah, fine. this movie is no. really intense. It'd be good to see it at theater, but it has a lot going on. So um, uh, I actually wanted to ask you guys about sequels. So this movie mm. is like a very rare thing in that it's a sequel. It's made by somebody else and it's kind of just as good as the original. It's not 100%. Right. It's not as groundbreaking, but it like, it stands right there. Right. Which is, I, I was racking my brain. I was like, I cannot think of another movie where the sequel is made by someone else. And it was just as good. Can you guys? No, no, no. I mean, I think of, we actually talked about it too. Yeah. We could not think, I of, can't that think of it. Certainly. Yeah. As far as like made by somebody else. Yeah. Sequels. As far as sequels go, it's already difficult. It's hard to make a second movie of anything and, and have, and not have it be a carbon copy of the first movie. Um, because you know, you're still exploring the same kernel idea, but then to have a different director do it. I mean, yeah, I think that maybe was one of the reasons why it was successful was because it was made by somebody else. Yeah. Um, and they took, huh. they took that idea and made a completely different movie. Yes, yeah. they used the same skin, but it really is a completely different movie. And they only kept one of the same characters. So oh, that reminds um, me, how did y'all feel about Prometheus and the other more recent one? Where do you guys feel like those are? I loved Prometheus. Cool. Um, I thought it was great. Yeah. I really, really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it felt um, authentic. Uh, you know, it felt like it was still the same universe. Um, and... What I, I guess what I appreciate about all of these movies is that they don't keep writing the same story. Okay, did we end up back in the back inside a, an alien ship? Sure. You know, do we end up with the big Geiger alien head thing again? Sure. But um, you know, it. Uh, we never ended. We that, that was it, the it first is, movie we had that they ended up in an alien ship, which is one of the things I thought was so cool about in, it. In, is in it Prometheus. Got- yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, or are you talking um, about the other one? Because Prometheus is Ridley Scott. I personally, when I saw it in theaters, I was like, man, this isn't so great. But like my 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 sister and my dad were like, I will live and die by this film. Like they were, they went, they dug their heels in so hard. My sister actually came on the podcast and like, and when I watched it again the second time, I was like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Ah, he's good. Than me too. Yeah, it took more than one viewing for me too. Yeah, I was it's like, just, first one was just a shock. Naomi <laughs> replaces like abortion scene. Ugh. No. Like, I, I mean, can't. Yeah. No. It's brutal. It's brutal. But, but you know, he's really good at that. Part of that horror, you know, it's like yeah, it's body horrific. Horror. Yeah. The body horror. I was just going to say, so I think overall the, the new sequels are doing well. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't think the there's not a lot of bad movies in this franchise, you know? Uh, you know, if we keep going, Alien 3 on the prison planet, fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. fourth one uh, with Data as the scientist there is fantastic. 
and then you go on to Prometheus, and then this most recent film is pretty solid as well. One. I haven't. I should I? Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, good. It's it's probably the most feminist of of this genre, but it's hmm. it's also the least liked. Is that the um, one with Winona Ryder? Yes. Of? Okay, I've heard a lot about it. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I like for me in books, like I read a lot of fantasy as well because I I like mm. to not be here in the in the world and present. <laughs> um, and I find that authors have the same problem because trilogies are kind of the norm for fantasy, and a lot of yeah. authors really stumble on the second book where there's this huge build up mm. payoff action sequence at the end of the third book. And the first book is really fun. And then oftentimes the second book is just kind of this connecting bridge. And there's only a few authors who I've read who really like can make that work. I I would argue that the Annihilation series actually also suffers from this problem where like the second book Mm -hmm. is widely considered kind of like a a slow clunker to get you to the third. Um, So have you guys, you've read so many sci-fi books. Can you think of any where the sequel to the sci-fi book was also as good? Uh, Ender's Game? Mm. Um, Oh, yes. So I know there's some problems with uh, Orson Scott Orson Card, Scott Card um, but he uh, wrote this, you know, Ender as a character to write the second novel, and so yeah, the, the first book even was better, just to get him to this other place, right? It's the um, Speaker of the Dead, mm-hmm. right? He, that's what he wanted to write. Um, and I actually so read all four of them. Do you, did you guys read the mm-hmm. like last books mm-hmm. where it's like the pequeños? Yeah. And um, I was working in yeah. an art studio at the time, listening to this book out loud. And the art, the artist who I was sharing it with was Brazilian. And she's like, this book is so racist. What are you listening to? Like, it's because like <laughs> the way that the words that he was using were like the Brazilian word for pig when he was referring to the people. And she's like, she was so offended by the book. I was like, no, no, no. It's like, they're like, cool. Like, it's not, not you don't understand. They're little like, aliens. It's they're okay. Like, they're like, smart. It's not <laughs> But like, you know, there yeah. is still that like Mormon, whatever he's going on. The Mormons are so good at writing sci-fi. So like, I can never be mad. Like They just have it down. And honestly, the second book is better than the first. You're right. Good, good one. Yeah. It's, it does. Yeah. It's yeah, like, and, and it's a good book. You just can't deny it. Yeah. That's the thing, you know? And uh, yeah, I think for me, yeah, Spe- Speaker for the Dead really was, is special. It really solid, it really made, it does the same thing Aliens does, where it's not the same story. Like you're coming at me from a different angle with, a, you know, a character who's learned from the first, you know, book. So that's, it's really great. Um, the other one that doesn't do that, that comes to mind is um, Frank Herbert's Dune books. Um, so, you know, I would say that the, the first three novels there really, you get a lot of, well, throughout the series, you get a lot of very different stories, but, um, what I appreciate about those first three novels in particular is that you get, um, you get a a world and you get, um, kind of to see a lineage progress and different stories happening within that lineage. But it's the same trope that Cameron was just saying which is like the fantasy novels the second book um Children of Dune that's Dune Messiah is the second one Dune Messiah uh, Messiah is the bridge right Right. yeah kind of don't need Dune Messiah I want the bridge to be fun and I've only so there's an author I like V.E. Schwab she's a fantasy writer and her second book in the series A Darker Shade of Magic is like it was the best book not only was it the best book I've ever read but it was like 
it was so good and it was so much better than the first and third and it's so rare for the author to like let go and have fun it almost i don't want to make a comparison but like the third the prisoner of azkaban is like one of the best of the harry potter books right like so where a middle book Mm -hmm. and the middle movie is best that was just because of alfonso quran but yeah that's that's (laughs) something that it's just so rare and especially in a world i'm glad you guys picked this because we're in a world that's so like completely just filled with sequels no one wants remakes no one wants right like we're so overwhelmed with these that i'm kind of i'm kind of so tired when i see like oh we're making this movie again and it's not even just sequels where they're adding something new they're just remaking movies so it was really refreshing to watch how to do it right um and what it seems like what i'm taking away from it is how to do it right is lean in like go with someone else like you said megan get a fresh perspective who loves the story and have that person lean into what they're good at so that there's sort of something mm-hmm. different about it. So it's like this time it's an action film. I think a good difference is the um, the tagline. So the tagline for this movie is this time it's war, which is like this time yeah. it's a military movie. You know, like that. I was like, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Like it's different. It's fun. And this time it's war. Yeah. Wow. I love it. Um, yeah. Anything else from your notes that you guys want to share that you wanted to get said? Or are we feeling like we covered everything? Uh, why were there no safeties in the airlock? <laughs> just like, how was she able to open that airlock? That has always bothered me. Oh, and I don't know how. No, like, why are there no safeties? How did her arm not just rip off of her body? Yes, That's the part that the got elbow. me the most. She's just hanging on her elbow while yeah. the entire ship's air is getting shoved out. That was one of the ones yeah. where it's like, I just have this thing where I go, movie, like, nah. <laughs> movie, movie logic. Yeah, yeah whatever. Well, I- I will say though, in my notes, I have it as I, a thing I'm so grateful for is that they did not do the immediate, okay, the airlock is open, there's no air, or like everyone's floating all of a sudden. The truth is, if you open the door of an airplane or a, a spaceship in space, it's not going to go from air to zero air. Um, and that was one thing that I I noticed and was grateful for that they weren't just like oh now we're all floating. Um, so I will say that, but Ripley would have been her arm would have been ripped off. Yeah, that sure. part that part that part stretches the imagination. But the in both the regular and extended versions, um, the fifteen minute countdown is exactly fifteen minutes. And I was like, thank you, <laughs> sir. Oh, nice. Like that's so rare. Like he just. Yeah. yeah, I think I think watching this movie again gave me a newfound appreciation for James Cameron because oh. I mean I don't know how you guys feel about Avatar. I have kind of like mm, lukewarm feelings towards it. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Like I just yeah, you're right. I do like the sci-fi. Doesn't doesn't Sigourney Weaver play a teenager in the new one? Yeah, she does. She does, and it's creepy. And if you like power loaders, <laughs> don't worry. There's plenty of power loaders in Avatar. Yeah, his his like interests are clear, right? Yeah, uh, he's all power loaders and Sigourney Weaver. That's pretty much <laughs> James Cameron. We went we went down kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole about like, well, horror sci-fi is not a big genre. Um, I think it's bigger in movies than it is oh, certainly in movies. Yeah. And than it is in, in the novel world. And we were trying to figure out like, well, what else is out there that we could talk about? Obviously annihilation is a big one. Um, Hyperion is a really good, like very scary story. Um, wait, I've never uh, heard of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a great, Oh yeah, of course. Uh, the first, the first yeah. sci-fi story Hyperion. I've never read that. Um, my favorite sci-fi horror is Event Horizon. 
Oh, oh yes, that for is sure. by it's far like, my favorite. It's like does it perfect in general. Yeah. yeah. That, like, yeah, that's on our um every like, you know, every October we go back through a whole bunch of horror and Event Horizon is definitely one of the ones that has a permanent spot. It's too scary. Like it's too scary. I could I would rather rewatch like a slasher than that movie because it's yeah. So that's yeah. the one that comes to me mind, but you're right. There's there's a lot more sci-fi romance than there are sci-fi yeah. horror, which is interesting because sci-fi romance yeah. is like very low on the total pole. Most of it is sci-fi yeah. action, right? Like sci-fi plus action. It's an action movie or it's like a quest story, right? I got to get this right. from this point of view. Yeah, but I alien you could attribute a lot of the sci-fi action stuff to aliens in general. They proved that you it could be a blockbuster and it could be Oh yeah action and science fiction just, and, it, and it works just um, like just like it proved that clowns can be scary i think this movie proved that yeah. that aliens are like some of the scariest stuff out well there. i don't mean it's scary i just mean action i think i mean i i'm saying that science fiction can be action it can be a blockbuster mm, yeah mm-hmm. because well Absolutely. before then there was star wars came out between the first alien and the second right mm-hmm. and that one well, i mean that's like a fantasy for being real but um right. that's I think like this is this is true action in the American sense. Like mm-hmm. there's like an American action, and I think it's funny because James Cameron had a lot of the same crew as Ridley Scott's crew, and they were so loyal to him that they were like really not giving him the time of day, which I love. Like the British crew just being like, "Who is this guy?" So right, yeah. he he had a screening scheduled of Terminator to like win them over, and none of them came. <laughs> like they were just like no like i mean the truth is it's fine you can you can tell there had to have been some like crew cohesion but there is a big difference between american and british sensibilities and that's just true between these two movies right Mm -hmm. americans are like marines guns tanks like we need to have that and that's just true like i take that for granted like the amount of explosions but Ridley Scott proved that you don't need those to make a movie incredibly scary. In fact, you yeah. need less stuff. You just need one blinking light. And I mean, that's something that other people had already figured out. And, I, and a really good creature design. Is there anything else that the movie reminded you of when you're watching it again? You mean story-wise? Um, or anything? Not, it, it really it, it really does. I, I hate I I'm not a big fan of Heinlein, and unfortunately, it does remind me a lot of Heinlein, um, especially Starship Troopers. Um, that you know the yeah. power loader, of course. You know, I read I read the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and I loved it. I did, so. I did like the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Loved harsh, it because that that, that that's another one of what we're talking about before this of like communism, good, mm-hmm. <laughs> where it does a good job of it. But then I immediately read like four of his other books and was just like, oh man, that is the first instance of an emergent AI that you see in a science fiction novel, not AI, an emergent AI that comes to fruition out of its own learning. Yeah. Kind That's of sense true. of self. Yeah. 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 They, so they cover a lot of ground in this, but yeah, the, for mm-hmm. me, it was the same thing. It was just like, I just, it just reminded me a lot of Heinlein. And I mean, mm-hmm. the truth is that it's easy to forget that this was groundbreaking at the time. Like so much right. of this was so groundbreaking and so, so massively. I mean, he was like breaking into a different sphere, but just like space. I mean, it, it is one of the first examples of space soldiers that I can mm-hmm. think of. Right. Um, and yeah, certainly on, on screen. Yeah. There's not that many. My favorite line um, from Bill Paxton is like, is this a bug mission or a rescue mission? 
much. It's a plug mission. It's a plug mission. Like, I love the idea. Like, that tells you so much. Also, fun fact, his two best lines, the express elevator to hell going down and it's game over, man, were both improvised. Yeah. Wow. He added a lot of value to that movie. He, um, he absolutely does. You know, I think that was, was one of, on the rewatch. Uh, like uh, it was one thing that I was like, man, this guy, you can't have this movie if you don't have Paxton. Yes. I, I think that's absolutely good true. casting. Cause he wasn't well known at that point. No. And then Twister. And then he's like a household name. Yeah, um, totally. Another movie that scared me so much as a kid <laughs> and on a wrong rewatch, it's just hilarious to watch, you know, like it's like oh, the CGI Twister, is really? so bad. The CGI is so bad. Yeah. I mean, some of it's scary, but like, as a kid, it really scared. Were but you, that you, flying cow was like a big deal I when they it. made it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my truck? I, yeah, yeah. I remember watching uh, Jurassic Park in the movie theater. It was like a, a gift from my uncle, and we got like it was the first time I ever was in a movie theater with like uh, leather seats. And I was like, "Ooh, this is this is crazy!" And I'm like in it with my siblings, and we're watching. And I was, we were really too close to the screen, and it was terrifying. Absolutely, the. the Tyrannus, it was exhilarating and terrifying. I will always remember that experience. I always ask people when I'm at a party, this is like my go-to icebreaker in any situation is, what's the movie as a kid you were too young to watch? And because people always have an answer and mine's Jurassic Park. My dad showed it to me, I was five and my sister and I were like shoving our heads under the pillows of the couch just to like (laughs) walk it out. Because it was so scary. And then for years, I had nightmares about the Velociraptor just opening my bedroom door and like shredding me. And I, I had so much, oh, had so much no. anger at my dad. I was like, why did you let me watch that? But it's like, it was wow. it was probably... Was total Recall. Oh, Total, total Recall. recall. Ooh, how old were you? My dad had to sit us down and say, "I'm gonna, we're going to watch this movie. But if you ever speak or swear, like any of these characters, we will never watch another movie again. That's great. Yep. Are you happy that he showed it to you at that age? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It's not like it was scary, but it definitely, definitely made some influences on my psyche. That's another movie um, we need to do on this podcast. I don't think I've ever. Yes, done we do. Yeah, yeah. She it was on our list. list. She was on yeah. our list. Yeah. This- yeah, it was on the list. The um, you know, the first of all, that that movie for me uh, was Terminator Two. Actually, yeah. I um, I was in the movie theater the week it came out. So I guess that means I had seen Terminator. Yeah, I, which, so I guess technically terminated the first film, but then uh, my dad and I went to see Terminator 2 and we had to leave. It's so much more scary with that guy. It's like, so the, scary. Like that it's guy, crazy. that actor alone, he's 12 times scarier than the original. The original is just an action film, you know? It's like, yeah. whatever. It's like, yeah, there's some gore and some shooting, whatever. But when he goes through the bars of the... Uh, it's like... And he's doing... It's that effect doing that, still like, looks amazing too. Yeah, and then when yeah. his arms turn into swords, I'm sorry. Like I, that guy, that's apparently he trained himself more. run to run without breathing, so he could do that whole scene practical. Like he just he just yeah. trained his body to do that, yeah. so he could run after the car, so that he can scar thousands yeah. of children for life. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but you know, you you ask like what it made me think of, and I, I think as I think back to the movies that we're talking about it's that it's a blockbuster it was huge 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 they were selling sneakers like oh reeboks oh my god just it was was, reeboks or nike yeah reeboks yeah and it's just one of those movies that that when you see it you feel how big it is you know and then when i think of movies like jurassic park movies like terminator 2 um that that these are other films that like have that kind of same 
production value, certainly, you know, they've got the budget, but also just something about the way it's shot feels glossier, feels like it's of, you know, a certain type. It's like the next, it's like next level almost. It, well, it's, he makes sure you feel the money, you know, yeah. he just, he's good. I mean, that's just what he's good at. Um, yeah, this movie, I'm so glad you guys had me rewatch it. I, it really, it really got me hyped up. Um, to make art. It also reminded me of how important a budget is. So maybe I'll watch Alien to feel better. But um, let's wrap up by you guys pitching um, what's going on with the Sci-Fi Book Club and how can people find out about it? Yeah, so we um, we are called the Sci-Fi Book Club. You can find us at on Meetup or at the Sci-Fi Book Club um, Currently, we are reading um, the Day of the Triffids. Um, I loved it. It is about, what was that? I loved it. And it's short. Yeah, it's short. Yeah. Um, so who is it by? Who's the, who's the author? Oh, Wyndham. So John Wyndham is the author. Um, so far, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, go ahead. Well, so um, yeah, the Sci-Fi Book Club switches back and forth between contemporary and classic selections every month. Um, so we're trying to read something that, um, you know, trying to figure out what what the good new novels are that are out there. Um, and then also looking back at the, you know, a book like Day of the Triffids that was yeah. published in 1951, you know, uh, that um, we've read a lot and hadn't made it to this one. So that's one of the really great parts about having um, an active membership is that um, from like really diverse backgrounds um, and, you know, people who've been reading sci-fi since they were teenagers in the fifties to, you know, uh, to, you know, people that are out there making movies and whatever now. So. Um, and, it, and it is really interesting to juxtapose the yeah. old and the quote, quote unquote, old, quote unquote, new classic, uh, and class, classic and contemporary yeah. um, to see the um, where science fiction is going as a genre in general. Mm. Um, and one of my favorites, we do this every year, but we um, in in uh, May, we always read um, the best American science fiction and fantasy short stories. Yes, we always do this every year. And it's a great snapshot um, because fantasy and science fiction are so intertwined, we don't read any. This is the only thing that we read that is fantasy because it's just part of this series. Um, and it's a great snapshot of where contemporary science fiction and fantasy are at um, because it's all short stories written in the previous year. And I'm really excited um, that that's coming up next. Um, Every time I read those, it blows my mind i've only read two of those volumes every single time mm -hmm. those short stories are so freaking good and i have I, I can look it over at my shelf and see like it's like every other one i have a little tab because as a filmmaker mm -hmm. the shorts are where you get your stuff like arrival was a was a short slash novella Absolutely. like what you're reading day of the triffids is, is what inspired 28 days later and like it's like those Lived are movie they're more movie length right like they're mm -hmm. and it inspired almost it inspired so much film so it's really but i like Absolutely. that a lot because having been on the book club it you're right the diverse membership is one of my favorite things about it is that it's does mm -hmm. it's by no means homogenous at all in fact it's like the biggest cross-section of people you know from ages and walks of life and that's yeah. that's really cool it got me all warm and fuzzy i was like the future so people if you enjoy <laughs> if you enjoy this podcast you will certainly enjoy the book club i highly recommend it yeah, yeah. So you can find us yeah at the sci-fi book club dot com and where um 
meeting on Zoom and uh, hoping to be able to, you know, we had to pivot to Zoom uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And since then, we've picked up membership really all over the country. So um, we, uh, yeah, we meet once a month, to talk about the book. Um, and um, we're hoping to be able to start hosting yeah. some events uh, around New York City. And you, you do not months. have to have read the book to join book club. So you, <laughs> okay. if you're if you just want to come talk about science fiction, as yeah. long as you don't mind spoilers of the book, absolutely join us. Well, as I said, some light spoilage can increase your enjoyment. So it's always good. Right, absolutely. So yeah, find them on Meetup or on their website. Um, Megan and John, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great episode. Thanks for having us, Cameron. Yeah, this this is, was really fun. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. We've been talking about aliens on This Is They Came From Outer Space. So she, could you light up here? Keep back, don't scare. Movement. Talk to me, Hudson. Uh, I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Get them out of there!